0: So today we're going to get into really trying to unpack last week's class and understanding what is the soul and especially what is this second soul, what we call the godly soul. Let's talk about chess for a second. You can't play chess unless you know how all the pieces are allowed to move. Mm -hmm. Unless you know their roles, their advantages, their weaknesses. And only then can you start to analyze and create a strategy for the game of chess. The same applies to working with your soul. Last week, we explained that we have this constant battle between These two souls inside of us, the animal soul that we call it, or as we call it, and the godly soul. And since the goal is to learn how to win the battle, we have to first learn, like the game of chess, all the attributes, all the capabilities, and the nature of these two souls. Now, the godly soul, according to Kabbalah and according to the Tanya, is an actual piece of God. A sliver of holiness, like an apple that's cut into separate pieces. Just as every aspect Just as every characteristic of an apple Can be found in each individual slice So is every character trait And nature of God present In this godly soul But the truth is that It's really tough to visualize And it's even harder to put into practice So The only way to truly understand the soul is by using analogies. Before I get really started on understanding and dissecting and unpacking the soul, we have to keep something in mind. All of the examples share a common idea that the world is comprised of three categories. Creator, creation, and the intermediary between them, the godly soul. In other words, the godly soul was not created like the rest of creation. The godly soul itself is part of the creator that is sent down into this physical world, and it's hidden within a physical body. So it's important to understand that there's a creator that created this. There's a creation that's the result of the creator. And there needs to be a connector. Kind of like the candle and the flame has the connector of the wick. What would the wax do without the wick? The wax wouldn't be wax. The flame definitely wouldn't ignite. There needs to be the connector of the wick in order to truly be able to connect the candle and the flame. In the beginning of the book of Bereshit, the book of Genesis, where the Torah discusses the way the world was created, we read, God said, let there be light. And there was light. Now, If you just read it simply, God said, that means the world was created through speech. Godly speech. God spoke and the world came into being. Now, when the Torah later describes the creation of Adam, of man, and the formation of his soul, it uses a very different language. It says, "God breathed Va'yipach, God breathed a living soul into him," which is related to the word "nifuach," which means "to blow or, or "to breathe out." And this illustrates that the soul is not spoken into existence, like everything else in creation. It's forcefully breathed into existence. He blew into him a breath of life that is forcefully breathed into existence. Now, what's the difference between speaking and breathing? Think about your own personal experience blowing up a balloon. Two things will happen when you blow a balloon. Number one, it's difficult to do anything else at the same time. And you tire quickly. Because while you're blowing up the balloon, your breathing comes from deep within you and draws many of your internal faculties. Now, speaking, on the other hand, comes from a more external source. And it's relatively easy to speak and we don't usually tire quickly from conversations with people unless they're emotionally draining, which is a different story. For example, I don't know how many balloons I can blow up in an hour, but I can definitely speak for an hour straight. So there's, you, there's, no, <clears throat> there's no question that the, the, the force of speech is different than the force of breathing into him a breath of life. So our soul comes from that innermost part of God, that innermost dimension of God, whereas the rest of creation comes from the external levels. What we're saying is the godly soul comes from, like the blowing up of the balloon, comes from that innermost part of God, whereas all other creation is like God spoke. That's what it says. The, the, for the godly soul, it came from the innermost part of God. Like blowing up a balloon requires all that intense strength. But by every other part of creation, it says God said, God spoke. So the difference is in the power of the breath. For every part of creation, the breath was like I'm speaking right now this amount of breath from God. Obviously, it's a metaphor. Whereas the godly soul has a completely different source. The different source is that the godly soul itself comes from the innermost part of God. So here we have a very clear difference between speaking and exhaling, which differentiates the Godly soul from the rest of creation. Another way to appreciate the uniqueness of the divine soul's creation is by examining the difference between thought and speech. Part of the levushim, the garments of the soul. Exactly. Very good. Speech is only an external expression of ourselves. Not who we truly are. Our thoughts are much more unified with the soul. And it's our thoughts that reveal the soul's essence. The difference also explains why we can stop speaking whenever we want, but our thought process is constantly flowing. It's never stopping for even a moment. And I think that this also demonstrates why the divine soul, why the godly soul, is closer to God than any other creation, since it derives from the level of divine thought and not from divine speech. So the source of the godly soul comes from divine thought, from God's thought, whereas the rest of creation comes from God's speech. We'll be back after a quick break. Are you tired of swiping right on every dating app out there and still getting nowhere? Are you convinced that you'll forever be alone, surrounded by nothing but uh, cats and empty takeout containers? <laughs> Hi, I'm Elisa Ben Shalom, the host of the new show, Jewish Matchmaking, which you can find on Netflix. And I'm the love rabbi, Rabbi Yistro Bernath, and we're inviting you to join us for Matchmaker Matchmaker. Each week, we'll answer one of your pressing relationship questions, from how to get over your ex to how to deal with your partner's annoying habits. So if you're ready to laugh, uh, cry, or maybe even find love, then tune in to Matchmaker Matchmaker, and it's available now wherever you listen to your podcasts. Here we're going to get to a bit of a deeper level We have to talk about The difference Between external And internal will Kabbalah Really Emphasizes this In order to truly understand The nature of the godly soul Each of us Has Each of us desires things that we want. All of our desires are either internal desires or they're external desires. What's the difference between an internal desire and an external desire? An internal desire is something that I truly want. It's something that it's not just a need it's not just a need it's something that my soul yearns for while the external desire is something that i want as a means to achieve what i truly want it's external it's not truly part of me for example let's say i want to attend this class well first i'm going to have to clarify the technical details where is it located How do I get there? If I have to uh, find uh, money for a bus or money for gas in my car, then I'm going to have to figure out how much does it cost to travel? Can I walk? And then, of course, I actually have to wake up at a certain time, prepare myself, and make sure that I can get there on time. But the truth is that all of this process... Which is probably this morning you weren't thinking about the whole process, you were just thinking you have to get there. So this is just the steps you have to go through in order to get what you truly want was to be here to join us in this class. So what I'm really interested in and the reason why I'm going to go through all the steps to get to this class this morning is because I really want to get to the class and I really want to be here to study. So all of the preparatory steps only serve as a means to an end. We call these external desires because the purpose for which all these steps are taken is called an internal desire. So the class becomes your internal desire. And everything you had to do this morning in order to get to this class was the external desire that led you to this internal desire. So let's now apply this, let's say, to other things in our lives. You're going to find that majority of our days are invested in external desires, things that we have to do. Meanwhile, the things we want to do, the internal desires, happen far less frequently. the difference between an internal and an external desire can also be applied to God. God's innermost desire is our godly soul. Everything else in creation is secondary. Everything else in creation is an external desire, which means the only reason That God created the entire world The world full of plants Animals Inanimate matter Was in order to reach the ultimate goal And purpose The godly soul The purpose for which This world was created Explains Kabbalah Is for the godly soul Now Let's ask the real question. I'm not expecting an answer right now. But how often do we use our godly soul? Think about it. The entire purpose, the internal will of God was the godly soul. And how often do we use it? we said last time, we're, we're not... <laughs> right? No, but we now understand the power of the soul. Yes, I understand. Like I mean, you know, where we aren't a tzaddik, <laughs> but we also have to realize yeah. the entire purpose for creation. Now I'm going to go to my next analogy. I think this analogy we have to look at in order to deepen our understanding of the nature of the godly soul. This analogy is probably one of the most popular analogies in all of Kabbalah and perhaps in Jewish theology and philosophy as well. The analogy of the parent and the child. There is a deep essence level connection between a parent and and a child that isn't dependent on any external reason or cause, which means a father doesn't love his son only because he's successful. He he doesn't love one of his children more than the others because of their academic achievement a mother is not going to favor and start deciding, oh, I like this more about this child and I like this more about that child. The love is the same for all the children because it flows from the very fact that they come from the essence of the, of, of the father, from the essence of the parent. Even in less than ideal situations, where there are difficulties and there are struggles in the parent-child relationship, there still remains this inexplicable connection between parent and child. You can't... The relationship between parent and child is so deep that you can't explain it. But... There are differences regarding the more external feelings of pleasure, of satisfaction, that a father derives from his children. For example, a father may get pleasure when he sees his son following in his footsteps. And when the child doesn't follow in the father's footsteps, he probably is not so happy. And the mood of the father may be affected by the child's choices, by the child's decisions. And this is only a reflection of the external dimension of their relationship. The internal love and connection remains the same no matter what the child does. So you can see The external And the internal difference More clearly In a situation let's say Where the father's son Has been taken captive Heaven forbid The father doesn't want his son back Because the child is the most successful Because the child's going to medical school The father wants the son back Because he wants his son back And will do whatever it takes Whatever it costs To get the child back it doesn't even matter how this particular child may or may not behave in the future and what their relationship may or may not have been before. Why? Because this situation brings out the deep, essential connection shared between father and son, which transcends all of the external characteristics of their relationship. The entire Essence of the relationship Is going to be brought out Because the father is now looking For the child So this is the ultimate The essential way To create that bond That relationship Or to see In the analogy That bond in that relationship God's connection with the godly soul is similar A deep Core essence Bond And while it's true That the fa- that this fact is, isn't always Consciously seen And felt Just as the father's love for his son Is not always openly expressed But internally It's always there Let me tell you a story After the Israeli army. A lot of Israelis end up in the Far East. They go for, I guess, their soul finding journeys. They're uh, post. Uh, They're post traumatic. <laughs> exactly. It's very common. Very common. Yeah. And they often end up in uh, Chabad centers in the Far East. They're filled filled with Israelis. So this Israeli girl walks into a Chabad center in India. She had grown up in a kibbutz. She had very little knowledge of Judaism. She had very little knowledge of her Jewish identity, which is very common of the kibbutzim and also very common of the difference in the separation between the secular and the religious Israelis. And it's very common also that while Israelis are in Israel, they don't explore anything Jewish. But all of a sudden, they go on these trips to the Far East and they want to connect to Judaism. It could primarily be because that's where you find all the Israelis. right? Nobody called me American while I was living in the U.S., but I came to Canada, and now I'm called an American. So, you want to go find the Israelis in the Far East, you go to the Chabad centers. But also, it could be that because of the spiritual journey, a lot of Israelis are looking for something spiritual, and they connect to Chabad there. She actually believed that the Chabad center in India was funded by her Taxes in Israel. Some Israelis even think that Jews who become Balei Tshuva, returnees to Judaism, begin receiving monthly payments of 10,000 Israeli shekels every month. I've heard that before. I never heard that. Before. Yeah. Okay. So she walks into this Chabad center. And right away she starts voicing her complaints against Chabad, against religion, against Judaism in general. She says, I'm enlightened. I'm educated I don't believe in God I don't believe in Torah So the Chabad rabbi Who tells the story Who's in charge of the center Was uh, particularly in a cheery mood So he decided to go along with her Instead of arguing Are you sure you don't believe? Absolutely Well if that's the case Then prove it there's a Torah scroll in the ark in the synagogue downstairs. Let's see you take it out and throw it on the floor. Oh, well, I, I, I can't do that. Why not? What's the problem? You just said you don't believe it's true. That the Torah is all made up and it's not holy. Then why can't you take the Torah out of the ark and throw it on the floor? She couldn't come up with an answer. Instead, she tried to make excuses like, I feel uncomfortable doing that. I may not believe, but I still don't want to disrespect it. So the rabbi says to her, if respect is the problem, then he's going to formally put aside his own pride. And she was welcome to to throw the Torah scroll on the floor. So she starts, I don't know, she's squirming. You know, she didn't want to make a bad name for the people from a kibbutz where she's from. She doesn't want to show that uh, they raised a bad child. He says, no problem, I can solve that as well. Take the Torah and go into a closed room with no windows... No one is going to see you. And throw it on the ground and then come out and tell us about it. After going back and forth with this kind of bit of a game, she's speechless. And finally, she confesses that though she had no explanation why, she simply couldn't do it. The rabbi smiles and says, I'm not surprised. You have a godly soul, just like the rest of us. It's true that it's been asleep for a long time. Perhaps even knocked out unconscious. But when it's pushed, when it's prodded, it awakens and asserts its absolute refusal to do anything that could separate it from God. And it's not just this Israeli girl. So many of us have these dozing souls. And the question we have to ask ourselves is what do we have to do to wake up our soul? And there's different people they are going to have different levels and different things they have to do in order to wake up their dozing godly souls. Because we have it. It's within us. It's a piece of God that's within us. But it could be a bored soul. Some people... When you push and pry, they wake up immediately in the morning. When you call their name, boom, godly soul, you can see it right on their face. And some people need to be shaken gently, other people a little more firmly. And some people, you even have to splash them with water. Waking up our souls... It's like waking up in the morning. It depends on who the person is. Some souls wake up easily, unwilling to allow a transgression even of the smallest sins. Others are harder to wake up. And only when they feel they've reached the outermost boundaries of sin, the outermost boundaries of separation and distance from their godly source, do they suddenly awaken. for so many people it takes these trips to the far east it takes the study of other religions because they're spiritualists it takes their their spending weeks in an ashram or discovering other parts of spirituality and all of a sudden they say well what is this i feel something what am i feeling So let's go back now to the parent-child relationship. I think that we can now better understand the nature and the character of the divine soul. Our godly souls make us all God's children. Like it says in the Devarim, you are the children of the Lord your God. As a result, we all become believers, and then the children of believers, maminim b'nei maminim, believers, the children of believers, and no one can take that away from us. Even when we speak, even when we act inappropriately, deep inside of us remains this intrinsic connection to God. The only question is, how deeply buried is our inner connection? And I think this is why there have been so many cases throughout history when people suddenly experience an awakening and a great longing for God that was not connected to learning, that wasn't connected to an increased understanding. If our relationship with God was based only on logic, if our relationship with God was based only on intellect, if we loved him, And we're connected to him only because it makes sense. Then we drop it as soon as we felt it wasn't right for us. As soon as it no longer made sense, we wouldn't continue doing it. But the bond is on an essence level. We, through our godly soul, are connected, are one with God. And thus cannot be broken. The bond, like the parent and the child, is intrinsic. The Hasidim of yesteryear used to sing a song of a father looking for his son in the forest. Screaming out. That intrinsic bond. It doesn't matter what the kid was doing yesterday. They could have had a big fight yesterday, but today... He is connecting to the intrinsic bond the father and child have, screaming out for him in the forest. What do you think? Okay, since you have no questions, we're going to go to a a deeper level. Let's go to a deeper level, a deeper level of parent and child. Beyond this essential bond that the parent and child ideally share, let's understand the way the child comes into being. The process of bringing the child into this world begins in the thoughts of the parents. Kabbalah explains this. This is not a biology class. The first thought travels down the spine of the father, is incorporated into the semen, which is then transferred into the mother for fertilization. This thought is now transformed into an embryo that develops and matures in the mother's womb, After months of development The fetus becomes a viable life And is born This is the Kabbalistic Explanation of how a child is formed And this explanation Demonstrates how the source How the root From which the child is derived Even physically speaking is in the mind of the parent, not in the speech of the parent. Even more, after the baby is born, the child's mind is the main organ that controls the entire body. Everything the child feels, everything the child thinks, every move the child makes, all of the organs of the child's body are functioning due to the brain. Every part of the body receives its energy, receives its life force directly from the brain. So, since every part of the child's body is connected to the brain, the child's brain is the organ that most closely resembles its original source, the parent's brain. The entire body of the child through the child's brain, remains connected to its source in the parent's brain. And I think this is the perfect analogy for our godly soul and the way it's connected to God. Our godly soul is not just where God created us and here we are in this world, but it's continuously connected to God. Earlier, we quoted this verse that says that you are the children of the Lord your God. And we discussed how this means that every single one of us, because of our unique soul, has this parent-child relationship with God. According to Kabbalah, the verse also teaches that the Jewish people collectively constitute one soul. And one child. That we are not separate entities from one another. That we are responsible for one another. Imagine. Imagine that we're looking at the earth from outer space. Through a special telescope. That enables us to see souls. We would see that all of us constitute one massive collective soul comprised of many organs many limbs similar to the way the body is designed some, some of the souls are legs others are the heart some are the spine maybe the, the mighty lofty souls the tzaddikim represent the brain so with this idea let's go back to our discussion of the way the son derives from the father's essence and remains connected to it all of the son's organs all of the child's organs and limbs in our analogy all of the souls are connected to the minds the souls of the righteous and the mind connects them back to the mind of the Father which is God the result that every single one of us is deeply and powerfully connected to God via the tzaddikim of a generation like the organs of the son's body connect to the father's brain by the way of the son's brain is an inherent connection with the Father's brain. So just like we have this inherent brain connection, we also, as if we're all part of the same body, all of the limbs connect to the brain. And through that, we connect to God. Now, there's something else that we can learn from this. From the parent-child relationship. When the child was still in the potential stage, when the child had no form, when the child had no actual existence, the physical body, the organs, the limbs, came into being only during this long process of development inside the mother's womb and the eventual emergence at birth. The same story is true with the godly soul. The godly soul descended. It developed. It transformed from on high, starting at the level of godly thought. Then it developed. It became physical and came down into the physical world and entered the body of the child, of the person. At this point, it should be clear That every single one of us is connected to God Since we said That we are believers The children of believers But at the same time The more we strive to be connected To the mind To the tzaddik Who is the leader of the generation And the other tzaddikim Of the generation The more this connection is internalized and revealed Tzaddikim don't see the world as we see it. Even if our faith in God is strong, when we look around, we first and foremost see the physical world, and then we have faith that the spiritual world exists behind the physicality that we see. When a tzaddik looks at the world, the tzaddik sees first the spiritual reality that infuses the entire physical world. The tzaddik sees godliness everywhere and is keenly aware that the physical world is not the true reality. By being connected to a tzaddik, we're given an opportunity to glimpse the world through the view of the tzaddik. We can see the world for a moment through the eyes of the tzaddik. And by that, we're able to uplift and connect our godly soul to God in a way that we weren't before. So, I have a question, but that doesn't mean we necessarily basically need them to connect to God because we have part of the godly soul in of ourselves. Of course, we can connect to God ourselves. But it'll definitely be A, a stronger connection And, and, a, and a more Conscious oriented connection We're not connecting to them To connect to God basically It's connecting to The tzaddik Like, the, like the, the hand connects to the brain So We have this godly soul this godly soul relates to God like a child relates to a parent. It's connection. Like the child's connection is from the mind of the parent and the brains connect so to our, to our godly soul is from the mind of God. And, the, and the, uh, it's an essence. From the essence of God from God blew into Adam a breath of life. Different than speech which is the rest of creation. And this Soul's connection, this godly soul's connection to God is eternal and it's unbreakable no matter what happens. Even if you're never raised with spirituality, even if you have no religion in your life, even if you never connect to it, it's always going to be there. And at some point, and as many people can share stories of this in their lives, it kind of wakes up and says, No, what are you doing for me? Like we feed our bodies, we have to feed our godly souls. That's exactly what we're doing here right now. Hi, Rabbi Bernath here. I have some great news for you. My popular four-week course, Kabbalah for Everyone, is available right now for free for the next 50 people who download it. All you have to do is go to www.theloverabbi.com, scroll to the bottom of the page, and you're going to see the download button right there.